This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Turtles All the Way Down, the new novel from John Green, author of The Fault in Our Stars. Turtles All the Way Down is about one girl's struggle with anxiety and the ripple effect it has on others. Read the first two chapters now over at turtlesallthewaydownbook.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 277 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new science fiction film Blade Runner 2049. And this will involve spoilers for everything in the movie, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Daniel H. Wilson, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 41, our panel on Robot Uprisings back in episode 107, and our panel on video games and books and movies back in episode 163. He holds a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon University, and his New York Times bestselling novel Robopocalypse is currently being adapted for film by Steven Spielberg. His latest novel, The Clockwork Dynasty, is out now. So Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Then next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, who you may remember from our panel on Star Trek Beyond back in episode 214, and our panel on The Handmaid's Tale back in episode 263. She's a Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes at Medium and crafts laser-cut jewelry and soap with swear words inside. She lives in Northern California with a Renaissance engineer, a dog, and a bird. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And also joining us today is Matthew Kressel, who you may remember from our panel on Jewish science fiction back in episode 172. He's the author of the novel King of Shards, and his short stories The Sounds of Old Earth and The Meeker and the All-Seeing Eye were both nominated for the Nebula Award. Together with Alan Dallow, he hosts the monthly Fantastic Fiction Reading Series at the KGB Bar in New York, and you should all go check out his recent Tor.com article, Why Blade Runner is More Relevant Than Ever. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And today's show is brought to you by Turtles All the Way Down, the new novel by number one best-selling author John Green, who you may know from his mega-popular YouTube channel Vlogbrothers, which he created with his brother Hank Green, and from his online educational series Crash Course. He's been listed by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world, has twice been a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize, and has also received such accolades as the Prince Medal and the Edgar Award. And here's a description of the book. It says... 16-year-old Aza never intended to pursue the mystery of fugitive billionaire Russell Pickett, but there's a $100,000 reward at stake, and her best and most fearless friend, Daisy, is eager to investigate. So together, they navigate the short distance and broad divides that separate them from Russell Pickett's son, Davis. Aza is trying. She's trying to be a good daughter, a good friend, a good student, and maybe even a good detective, while also living within the ever-tightening spiral of her own thoughts. In his long-awaited return, John Green, the acclaimed, award-winning author of Looking for Alaska and The Fault in Our Stars, shares Aza's story with shattering, unflinching clarity in this brilliant novel of love, resilience, and the power of lifelong friendship. So again, the book is called Turtles All the Way Down, and you can read the first two chapters now over at turtlesallthewaydownbook.com. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Okay, so I want to start and talk to Matt, because Matt, you are the biggest Blade Runner fan that I know. <laughs> and I have personally witnessed you, uh, don't you watch Blade Runner every New Year's Eve at midnight and you kind of quote the movie as you're watching it? I, I do. And, and actually, I think this this may have been the first year where I didn't do that. Um, uh, yeah, it was sort of my party trick. And um, as you can possibly, as you can imagine, um, you know, after a, a night of drinking, Sometimes my uh, quotes get uh, 
a little bit uh, less accurate as the night goes on. But uh, yeah, that is that is something that I do. You're just like like fears in the team. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but so tell us, why do you love Blade Runner so much? Um, I think for me, it's that each time I watch it, I I uncover a a new layer or a new um a, a new piece of the of the film that um I may I may not have quite considered before. Um, for me, it, Blade Runner feels like kind of a Rorschach test. And, um, I think that's why so many people react in the way they do to the film is that they, they, the, the film doesn't provide easy answers. Um, there's just so much layering there that everyone comes out of it with their own experience. And I, I've noticed that when I watch it, um, my interpretation of the film changes depending on, on my own mood as well. Um, so I, I just feel like there's so much there. And I also, you know, what, what the the common answer is that the themes that it explores, the themes of what it means to be human, uh, what you know, what our definition of of, of such, and um, you know whether or not our memories make us, things like that. Um, also, like it has an incredible, it had such an incredible visual appeal to me, especially at a young age. That before I really even understood the themes, I was just kind of mesmerized by it. I, re I remember very vividly remembering the scene where, where Deckard uh, gives the void comp to Rachel before I really even knew that, that, that I, I, I saw it for the first time. I think it was on like HBO. I did not see it in the theater. And just that scene just stuck in my, my head. And, and um, yeah, it's just, it's such a, you know, because I've watched it so many times, I feel like every time I watch Blade Runner, it sort of takes me back to every time I've watched it. <laughs> so it's, it's it's almost like a nostalgia for me as well. Well, yeah, I had a very similar experience because I saw the movie when I was a real little kid. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but then I, I and I remembered the scene, kind of the same kind of idea you're talking about where Rachel says that, you know, she, she doesn't believe that she's a, a replicant and she talks about these things that she can remember and that they... And discovers that, you know, is told that they were implanted in her head and their other people's memories. And, you know, and, and that I don't think anything has ever blown my mind so much as being a kid and, and, and watching that. And for a long time, I, I sort of forgot what movie it had been. You know, I just remembered the scene. I was like, wow, that was such a great scene. I wonder what movie that was from. And then later I watched Blade Runner again. I was like, oh, my God, this is it. This is the thing with the memory and the, the spiders and everything. It was your own wooden horse. Yes. <laughs> it was also the, the cat, the meowing of the cat when Deckard is going into the Bradbury building. That just haunted me for years. And I was like, oh, man, like every time I heard that, it just took me right back there. Yeah. Well, how about so, Sarah, what do you what do you think about what Matt's saying here about how awesome Blade Runner is? Yeah, I mean, it to me, it sort of exemplifies why people like science fiction and why science fiction is different from, you know, anything else that we have in the um in, in fiction that, you know, we have this thing that's really not been around too long. I mean, it's, you know, something in that, you know, from the days of Mary Shelley. Uh, and that's why the same themes keep popping up and probably why, you know, Ridley Scott is so obsessed with Prometheus. <laughs> but, um, so, you know, it, it, it's a wonderful story to sort of say, this is why science fiction is so great. And it, it, it there are so many tie-ins to, you know, the modern world of 
you know, when the original came out, the modeled world now, which unfortunately the world hasn't changed that much. Um, and, you know, we still are having the same issues and slavery exists, sexual slavery exists, that kind of thing. And so, uh, you know, to have something that, you know, science fiction is, is at its best when it, uh, talks about stuff that's happening now in the world or that has happened in the world. And Blade Runner has always done a great job of, of doing that. Well, it's funny you say that because just earlier today on Twitter, I saw someone post a thing and it said, if you're under the age of 60, you were never promised a flying car. You were promised a uh, cyberpunk dystopian hellscape. And here you go. <laughs> that's right. Very right. Accurate. <laughs> uh, how about Daniel? Sort of what is your uh, background with Blade Runner? Uh, yeah, you know, I, um, I have to say that there don't really seem to be many robots in Blade Runner to me. <laughs> They're never, they never felt like robots. They felt like people, you know, everything was so realistic that when I watched it as a kid, it never grabbed me as science fiction beyond the fact that, you know, it was dark and brooding. There were flying cars. So, you know, I appreciate Blade Runner aesthetically i appreciate it as a work of art like intellectually it really grabs me but it's like work you know <laughs> like i really gotta sit and like think about it and focus on it so as entertainment you know it's never what i pop in to like you know just watch a bunch of people kick ass and, and you know rush around and get a lot of plot so uh you know and then also having you know really liked the original philip k dick story it kind of that always felt like very different. And, and so I don't know, you know, I'm not, um, you can put me on the other end of the spectrum of Matt. <laughs> so maybe we'll have a more balanced, uh, discussion about it because, um, you know, I love robots and robotics and science fiction, you know, predominantly that's what I'm really into. And this never, although they examine all these themes, I never really, they never really cut them open. They never, it was more like, uh, it's always felt more like Battlestar Galactica to me in that these are just people that other people call robots. Um, and it's really tough for me to distinguish, you know, uh, what the difference is. But in terms of, you know, perpetuating all the awesome Philip K. Dick themes that I love, like, uh, you know, just not believing everything's so trippy, not believing whether this is real, not knowing whether you're really human, making you question reality. I mean, it does all that so perfectly that it, I think it really encapsulates uh, a lot of his work and, and is, you know, is just a, a great messenger for that, you know, to the world. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm interested to discuss it because, um, you know, it, it never grabbed me emotionally uh, as much as it grabbed me intellectually. That's interesting, Dan, because, I mean, Blade Runner is, I would definitely say, one of my favorite movies. But I would say that it is not a difficult movie to fall asleep during. And <laughs> yeah. it is, um, you know, you, you have the feeling that not all the parts really are consistent with each other or, as I think is the case, that the different people making the movie weren't all on the same page about what was going on <laughs> where. Uh, Matt, what do you think about that? I mean, I've heard Blade Runner called like the fifty film, fifty-five million dollar art film. You know, it's 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 basically um, this slow brooding. Um, it it is very intellectual, but at the same time, I think what's what's powerful for me, I I, I kind of disagree that there isn't really an emotional pull to it. I think it's just that it requires you to work, and I and I think that um, you know, I know we're going to talk about the new film in a little while, but like, 
I heard it's not doing as well as they predicted. And I think part of it is that the viewer has to do work. You know, you, you go into a lot of films today and it's like everything is presented for you. Here's plot point A, here's plot point B, here's plot point C. Blade Runner, the original and, and the follow up, uh, don't do that or, or do that in a way that forces you to, to put the pieces together yourself. So, um, I, I find that really rewarding. I find that, um, uh, when I find those pieces and especially not like the overt stuff, but the stuff that's sort of sprinkled throughout in the background, the double entendre that somebody says, um, actually adds, uh, impact and meaning to me. And I, I find the, the movie incredibly emotional, um, especially with the, you know, the culmination of the scene with, with Batty on the roof. I mean, to me, it's just one of the sure. great, greatest all time shots. You know what, you know what cinema. I felt like when Batty says that line, when he says, I've seen, uh, you know, attack ships off the shoulder of Orion. I think mm-hmm. I want to go see that fucking movie. I want to go see robots fighting <laughs> fucking an Orion. Like what? They're in spaceships. They're like having laser battles. Oh, yeah. deep sp- Let's go see yeah, that. I mean, you know you, what? Did you <laughs> see any of the, somewhere? The, uh, it's raining. <laughs> did you see any of the short, the short films? There's the one by the, uh, the, um, producer of, of Cowboy Bebop and there's like mm-hmm. a, a flashback scene where you kind of see a battle, but it's, it's very blurry. And I think actually they, they were supposed to shoot a, an off-world scene in the original film um, of Batty and the other replicants escaping. So you would have seen oh, at least neat. part of the off-world. But, well, uh, you know, that's yeah. actually what blows me away about the original Blade Runner is that it has that level of complexity. Because if you look at most of the adaptations of Philip K. Dick's stuff, what happens is there's some kind of really rad high concept. And then they establish the high concept in the first couple of minutes of the film. And then the rest of the film explores the high concept, which is so cool, and it's usually a lot of action. So, like, you think of Looper. Well, like, a guy gets blown away in a field within five seconds, and then through VO, you realize, oh, this is cool. And then, like, you know, Minority Report, and they're like, uh, you know, they go, they go solve a crime before it happens. Like, you get the high concept, it's in, like, this cold open with a lot of action, and it's really, you know, it really grabs you and you run with it. And they're not really like this movie. They're not really like, uh, you know, Blade Runner. It, in that they're they're all still great movies, which is kind of amazing. The track record on, on Philip K. Dick movies. Wait, point but, point um, of order is Looper a PKD? I, I was just gonna. I was just. I don't think it it is. I, I know. No, uh, um, you know, t- uh, Total Recall, Minority Report, right, right. Um, Scanner, okay, Scanner Darkly. I, I don't think Looper is. Okay. Whoops. Yeah. But but you see what I mean? Like in a lot of those, he's got a cool high concept that's sort of conveyed immediately. And with Blade Runner, you think this high concept is like very simple to convey, right? And, and it is. In the original Blade Runner, don't they start with a, a Voight comp test and then what? The android kills a person and then you realize, uh, you know, there's detectives that hunt androids so, or, or, sent, or whatever they call them. So like replicants. Um, so, so like that movie really could have easily been just an action flick, right? Um, and the fact that it's so complex is, is really kind of amazing that that even happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they were, um, my understanding was that they wanted to do sort of a, a, a Chinatown-like film noir, but in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, and if you watch that film, it's definitely a slow burn. So I think they were, they were definitely going for that type of feel with it. Um, I think, you know, um, it's, it's a, a directorial trick, and it, you probably see this in, in, you know, written fiction as well, is, is you start off with, with this intense, you know, really intense, uh, vi- violent scene or action scene. And then you, uh, you know, pull away. And then there's this like 
very slow build of character and whatnot. Um, you know, I, I think also, um, a lot of today's like Hollywood films, um, they, you know, they don't have a lot of patience, I guess is the way I would describe it. They, they sort of expect the audience to get bored really quickly. So like, well, we better have action. We better, we better have the, you know, uh, an explosion every, every, at least one explosion every 10 minutes. Otherwise the audience will get bored. And, you know, I, I think that's why I love, um, both the original and, and the new film because it, it, it respects the audience. It says, no, I know you're not going to get bored with this. Or at least, you know, the people who really want to see this, uh, you know, I, I read a lot of reviews. I read a lot of professional reviews and fan reviews. And some people said, yeah, this movie's boring. The new movie's boring. And that's a perfectly valid point of view. I didn't feel that way, but some people said, sorry, yeah, sorry. It, yeah. No, it, uh, it really does, re- you know, it, it contributes to why it was such a miracle because especially with the new one, I mean, knowing that they added the voiceovers after original test audiences were, um, unhappy with the product that, you know, there was the whole thing about Harrison Ford being angry as hell that he had to do the voiceovers and he thought they were stupid. And some people even thought that he, you know, kind of didn't quite do a good job of them in hopes that they would end up cutting them in the end. But they added them because test audiences were confused. And I thought, well, gee, if 1982 audiences are confused, hmm. what are they going to do to audiences in 2017 mm-hmm. who are, you know, presumably, portably, always distracted by, you know, smartphones and stuff? How are they going to sit through a two, 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 two hour, 45 minute film yeah. without them doing the same kind of dumbing down? And, you know, I was so pleased that they, that they didn't appear to do that. Okay. Wait, before we get to the new movie, I have a couple of things I want to say about the old movie. And so one is, um, Matt, speaking of what people making it were thinking, I don't know if have you read this book. There's this book called Future Noir by Paul M. Salmon, which is fantastic. It's one of the yeah, best making I've, of movie books I've ever read. I've, I've, um, I read it um, about 10 years ago. or I, I think I read it around the time that, uh, yeah, it would be 10 years ago when the, the final cut came out. And then I'm, I just bought the new version, which has like expanded sections with uh, the new film. Um, and I'm about three quarters of the way through that, but I didn't, I didn't finish that one yet. Uh-huh. Do you have a preference, Matt, between the final cut and the director's cut and the theatrical cut and all that stuff? I, I like the final cut. Um, I, you know, it has a few extended scenes, which for me is really cool. You get to see a little bit deeper into the world. Um, it fixes some of the, the continuity problems and also just some of the, um, the, the shots uh especially of the city are, are like cleaned up you know there's that famous uh part where the you know the dove is released and in the, in the original theatrical release it was like some really crappy shot of like a dove flying above like some steel pipe and you're supposed to think wait this is the same industrial um super densely crowded city that we saw in all these other shots and then the um so yeah, it's like I mean, a blue I, sky, isn't it? It's a yeah. It's like a, I mean, <laughs> I I think they're getting a little too literal with the metaphor there, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it fixes a lot of that stuff, and um, it, it's sort of the you know director's final vision. So I'm I'm okay with that, and that's usually the one that whenever I rewatch, I'll I'll watch that one. Yeah, well, and the final cut makes it very clear to my mind that Deckard is a replicant. Yes, but. <laughs> <laughs> we, I like to leave it ambiguous because I think it makes it a better film. But yeah, I, me too. I, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, sir. I did want to ask you. Do you want to just say a bit more about? Is there anything that you do? You have any criticisms of Blade Runner, or just say, say more about how you feel about the movie and the different versions and stuff? 
1982 version? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 uh, I mean, all, all of the criticisms that I would have are, are sort of, um, related to the era in which it was done. I mean, I actually would love to have that version without the, um, voiceovers. Um, you know, I also hated the voiceovers and I remember the first time I watched it, I thought it was odd. It didn't quite seem to fit. Um, and it seemed hokey. And, you know, I, I knew that part of that hokiness was the, you know, sort of noir detective thing. Um, and having had, you know, having watched a lot of like Humphrey Bogart, you know, detective stories growing up and I was homeschooled. So I watched Turner classic movies for hours and hours and hours. And I understood where all of that was coming from, but it was still really heavy handed. Um, and so I was very pleased when, you know, years later I found out that they were added and that they were added, you know, sort of disdainfully. Um, but that, you know, other than that, it's, uh, it's a perfect film and it's timeless despite, you know, the fact that it's very clear when it was made aesthetically, it's very clear that when it was made, um, you know, and having the, you know, eighties shoulder pads and the shiny, <laughs> shiny, shiny lips and, and all of that stuff. But yeah, I, I think it's uh pretty timeless overall. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I appreciate you guys indulging me, but I can tell that you're just raring to go when it comes to talking about this <laughs> new movie. So, um, so, Daniel, I'm actually kind of curious what you thought of the new movie, because being not such a huge fan of the original Blade Runner. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so so I loved it. I'm glad that I went and saw it. It took all afternoon. Also, whenever they started playing the movie, I think they accidentally were playing the 3D version on a 2D screen. So there were a few minutes where I was like, wow, they're getting really out there with these <laughs> graphics. Like, this is <laughs> fucked. And also the original, when, when the movie opens, there are the subtitles that sort of lay out the, you know, the general lay of the land. And for whatever reason, those were cropped. And I was like, these subtitles don't make any fucking sense. Like, what's wrong with these people? This is how it starts. So anyway, once they restarted the movie, uh, <laughs> um, and I was able to, to really watch it. Um, so I really liked it. I, I, I mean, I'll say, Honestly, that the original Blade Runner, I have to swallow a few yawns during that film. This new one, that never happened. Um, so I was, because it's such a, it felt like a real detective story. Like, I mean, they were literally, it's like, here's a clue. Okay, let's go get the clue analyzed, you know, from the funny person over here. Okay, now we know more. Now let's move forward. So that kind of pulled me through the film. Um, in a way that I was, I was able, there was enough plot there for me that my, my poor, um, ADD like, um, brain was able to, uh, focus on it <laughs> and get pulled through. Um, in terms of the, the deeper themes, man, like, okay, I write a lot about robots and I have a card, there's a cardinal sin, which is you get to the end and you go, he was a robot, you know, <laughs> like that thing, like that reveal that a person was a robot the whole time has just been done so many times that I consider it off limits. But to do, we're doing full spoilers, right? That's yeah, well, yeah. Although maybe let's let's talk about maybe some of the like beginning of the movie kind of stuff before we get into the end of the movie kind of stuff. Okay. Well, anyway, there were some reveals that um, I felt like were pretty fresh um, in terms of dealing with robots and the line between robots and humans. Um, uh, yeah, I, I have to say I found myself from a technology perspective kind of confused about the mechanics of how the robots work. Like, 
I guess they breathe, you know, like, cause there's a part where robots are having their, you know, they're drowning or they're getting punched in the neck or whatever. But like, it doesn't matter if you stab them. They're okay with that. They can bleed, but then I guess they can bleed to death. Like, I was having trouble figuring out like what the fuck like kills a, is it okay to curse during this? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, okay. a, the, the horse just kind of <laughs> left the barn at the, just yeah, I know. Apologies. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking it to a blue place here. Uh, but, but I was just like, okay, so like, I don't understand the rules on like what kills one of these things and like how strong they are and stuff. Um, so that I found myself a little distracted by that, but the overall plot, it hung together. It was tight. Like it was a great detective story. All the little gizmos and things I loved. And then the, the, I felt like the reveals and especially the love story were like incredibly interesting to me and just like, you know, new. Like I hadn't really, I've seen versions of it, but I haven't seen this stuff before. So whatever. Thumbs up from me. <laughs> well, yeah, let me pick up on the thing about the nature of the replicants, because I agree with you that I thought it was a little more confusing in this one than in the previous Blade Runner movie, because in the previous Blade Runner movie, there's the very strong sense, at least for me, that these are, they're like real dolls kind of constructed from biological parts. And that's why there's the guy with the eyeballs and the liquid nitrogen and stuff. And in this one, they have, we find out that they have DNA and, um, it just it, it it seems like the like what it, what what is the difference between a replicant and a human felt a lot more ambiguous in this yeah. movie compared to the last one. And uh, one more thing, I gotta say, like just from us, and this is you know this is sort of like what Sarah was saying about the original Blade Runner, where they kind of like have to they're not making the movie in a vacuum, right? They know they've got to sell the movie, and therefore they've got to make some commercial decisions. You know, Jared Lado or however you pronounce it, and and Harrison Ford, these are obviously, these are like the biggest stars. And so like all of the advertising led me to kind of believe that they were going to play a bigger role. And then, and especially Harrison, it was fine. I felt like his character came in at a perfectly reasonable time and that was all great. They alluded to him. It was, he was a mystery, but like the, 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 the big bad guy, uh, like he didn't ever, I wasn't, I was confused about who was the bad guy. And then I realized, wait, is, I thought actually one, another directorial trick to make a, a bad guy seem really bad is you introduce a henchman who's a really bad motherfucker. And then you realize this isn't our bad guy. Our bad guy's even worse. You know, whenever the henchman goes to the bad guy and sort of like kneels down and says like, tell me what to do, boss. And I thought that's what they were doing in this film with the, uh, I don't know her name. Uh, uh anybody remember? Sylvia Hoax, yeah. Yeah, so like, so with her, I thought, wow, oh man, the big bad guy must be really bad. And then we introdu get introduced to him, and then we realize, oh wait, he's really just going to sort of show up and spout, like, you know, philosophical nonsense occasionally. And, and he's not really, like, I didn't really feel like he was a villain. He didn't really ever interact with anybody or do anything, <laughs> you know, so... uh you know, the person getting into the fist fight to the death in the end, he's not that person. So uh, I felt like, you know, maybe I'd been a little misled by all the advertising. Um, okay, well, I realized well, this guy came in for three days and shot a couple parts and then he was out, you know. <laughs> okay, wait. So, so we've got uh, Jared Leto to talk about and Harrison Ford to talk about. But before we get to that, let's uh, just like uh, finish up this thing about the difference between humans and replicants in the movie. And is that confusing, right? So, okay, Matt, sorry. as our resident Blade Runner expert, 
what did you think about that? Do you agree with me that it was it felt a little bit different slash confusing in this movie? I, yeah, but I, I think that was actually intentional. Um, I mean, my my understanding of the replicants are that they are there's no robot robotics at all. That they are just purely um, like you know created in the lab. They're they're basically like petri petri dish, right? So that, that they're just um, genetic creations. I mean, you saw in the in the the new film uh, how they were born, literally like coming out of a uh, you know, uh, pseudo womb there, which had other connotations to me as well. But, um, yeah, they're, they're just like, um, genetic creations. They don't, they're, they're basically, I don't want to say born because that word is loaded in this film, but they are brought to life, um, as in, in adult bodies. And in order to, um, basically keep them emotionally balanced they have to give them false memories and i I thought that was really cool that they they in this film the replicants know that they are not real that the memories are there just to give them stability and you know you know and for me it was just that the film was you know showed very clearly that they they were just uh they were just um human-like i mean they were just we were just we had developed the ability to create sentient life. So what, you know, and, and then what does that mean for us? What, what, how, you know, how does that change, uh, what we are? If we're no longer, you know, the product of, of evolution, but we're actively participating in it. But see, the replicants seem to be able to like punch through steel and all sorts of, you know, put their hands in liquid nitrogen and all sorts of really, um, remarkable. Well, yeah, they established that in the first film, right? So, so, uh, you know, you have that scene where, where, uh, Leon sticks his hand in, in the liquid nitrogen, right? And, uh. Right, right. But, but so I'm saying, so in the first movie, that gave me the idea that these are not just sort of genetically tweaked human beings, but are like, well, maybe their, their muscles are made out of something significantly different than human muscles are made out of, or things like that. My understanding was that they were engineered to be really, really good at a specific task, right? So you have these soldiers that are engineered to be really, really good at being soldiers. Um, you know, Kay's character, Gosling's character, is engineered to be a really, really good, essentially, bounty hunter, right? Um, and so, you know, one of the things I thought that was really good about his acting was, if you remember the scene where they, they're shooting, they shoot down his spinner, and, and he basically has a, a lightning strike, there's no power. If you watch his face, he doesn't look scared. He's like concerned, but he's not terrified like a human would be. And then you realize, oh, he's just engineered to just be better at everything. Um, that's the way I saw it. The only part that sort of broke it for me um, in believability was when he literally jumped through that, that wall. And then I was like, "Oh yeah, I don't know." Like, like, yeah. Why'd they put that in? That was well, that struck out well, as odd I to me. I couldn't figure it out the first time, and when I saw it the second time, if you watch really quickly, Harrison Ford locks the door. So, yeah. so, so it was like, oh, it was just he was. That's how he had to get through. But I think it also time, set up that he would survive the explosion that was about to come because if he can jump through a wall, then he can also absorb shrapnel damage. But anyway. yeah, I mean, he did survive. I mean, yeah, yeah, he did. He did. Why'd they leave him there? I mean, yeah, he's I, like I, I don't their think number that makes one. Any sense. 
Okay, that was uh, that was track. a big flaw. That uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but but yeah, again, let's 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 try to stick to the first half of the movie for the moment. They should have just so, blown him out of the windows. Oh. <laughs> um, but but so Sarah, do you have anything you want to add about what I'm about my uh, concerns here about the replicants? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that the the point is that they are very advanced biological beings. They're like you know the closest word that we have is clones, and you know instead of using the word clones, it's replicants, and um, the, obviously, we have the ability to um, make them stronger in whatever way, you know, without necessarily altering the, the uh, you know, the, you get the impression, due to the difficulty of hunting these characters down, that, you know, they, they have human bones, you know, when they, when they die. They don't really leave behind a bunch of robotic parts, because if they did, it would be a lot easier to tell who is truly human and who is a replicant. Um, so that part, I think, requires a little willing suspension of disbelief. It's, you know, definitely this idea that they are biological beings, and 100% so, um, but that they just happen to possess certain qualities that we, you know, don't even have the science fiction to support yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, Daniel was talking about the Jared Leto character, and I saw that he was supposedly, I think Jared Leto said that he had based the character on some Silicon Valley types. And I know you're kind of out in the neck of the woods. Did he, did that? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I thought of when I watched it is, you know, I, I uh, was thinking, Oh no, this guy is totally believable because, you know, I think in 2017, the radical visionary is a kind of villain and a kind of hero at the same time. Like we're not sure whether Elon Musk, for instance, is ever going to go evil. You (laughs) know, is he going to just always be altruistic and always be humanistic or is he going to at some point do something really scary? Um, and so, you know, some are, some would argue he already has. Um, and so I feel like, you know, especially living in Silicon Valley where, you know, the TV show Silicon Valley, I actually can't stand watching it because it's too realistic. <laughs> it's, it's not even, it's not satirical enough to be funny. So it just makes me uncomfortable. So the whole time I'm watching it, I'm just like, I'm uncomfortable. I don't like this. I hate all of these people and I can't watch it. <laughs> but you know, it, that's why, like, when I watched this, uh, when I saw Jarrett Lido's character, I thought, yes, this totally is a believable, you know, sort of Silicon Valley, uh, visionary who's so caught up in his own way of thinking. Um, and his own prejudices that he ha- is a truly terrifying, powerful individual. Well, and the resonances with Musk, when, where he's just talking about how we have to settle the stars and everything, it seems like that can't be accidental. That, you know. Yeah, no. Mm. <laughs> I mean, they, they mentioned, you know, they name dropped Elon Musk in the, the last, you know, last night's episode of Star Trek Discovery. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, and then, uh, Daniel was also mentioning Harrison Ford and I, I wish that, I mean, there's no way this could have ever happened, but I wish that I hadn't known Harrison Ford was in this movie. If they could have come and somehow <laughs> kept that secret, that would have been so amazing. I actually, um, I agree. after I saw the first trailer for this movie, whenever the trailer would come on, when I was at the movies, I would close my eyes and cover my ears and go like, um, but yeah, it wasn't enough to prevent me from knowing that Harrison and, and then like they showed the scene where he meets Ryan Gosling. And so that kind of shows, tells you where the movie is going. Cause he doesn't, that scene doesn't happen until so late in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Although, although to the, the editor, whoever edited the, uh, the trailers to their credit, they, they did, um, avoid, um, or they, they cut it up in such a way that, uh, at least made me think that their, their first meeting was cordial and, you know, Harrison Ford. Really? Wait, 
like that's how I, not exactly cordial. Like he pulls his gun out and then he's like, I have some <laughs> questions for you. And then they're drinking and you're like, Oh, okay. You know, I didn't think it would go that, but then no, like when you see it, I mean, I guess we're doing spoilers. Like, how, like, like Decker just shoots him. He's like, boom, you know, get out of my, get out of my casino. See you later. Boom. See, I, I made like, the assumption that Gosling was hunting him and that, it, and that Ryan Gosling was a, a new Blade Runner and, and he's hunting, you know, an old, uh, robot. But I'm glad that it wasn't that way. In fact, it really subverted all my expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I don't, as I said, I covered my eyes for all the trailers. So I didn't know that Ryan Gosling was a replicant. So that was really the, the first scene yeah, where he, he suddenly, like, unexpectedly just beats the absolute fucking shit out of Dave Batista. Uh, really was you know i was like holy shit that that surprised me it's when he gets stabbed i guess so so if we're talking harrison then um who is he a replicant (laughs) what's the consensus here uh i mean the the filmmakers have said that it's uh purposefully ambiguous really Um, that's the best way yeah but here's what i thought the reason that he went out to the orange place (laughs) uh was that uh there was a radiation there's a dirty bomb that went off there and there's radiation traces on the wooden horse right so i've always loved the idea in science fiction of robots living in human lethal environments uh in order to be left alone and so my assumption right then was oh this guy is clearly uh immune to radiation poisoning and and living out here alone in the in a place where a dirty bomb went off and then I was happy to make that assumption and, and to and to sort of feel like I knew. And then later, I think they they did some things to make it more ambiguous. And I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> well, how's the human being living with radiation poisoning? You know, um, what was my feeling? Although when you do when you see um, when Kay is flying the drone over the city, it says radiation levels nominal, and like I was like, it didn't say elevated. So I was like, oh, well, maybe. You know, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Um, but I, you know, one of the things that I love about Blade Runner and old and new films is the, is the, the way that you can read things different ways. So, you know, you're, you're like, oh, well, he's clearly a replicant because he's living in a, you know, high radiation area. And in my mind, I'm like, well, you know, he's, he's not really as strong as the other, other replicants. So maybe he's, maybe he's not one. I don't know. And then, you know, there's that ambiguous statement that, uh, Nyander Wallace says to him, like, if you were, you know, a replicate, that's like <laughs> clearly like they were just trying to be as ambiguous as possible, which which I, I like that. Well, actually, now let me pick up on the thing about the strength, because my the way I read the original movie is that the replicants who don't know that they're replicants just have normal human strength, because if they were like tearing the doors off their hinges, <laughs> that would give away pretty quickly to the, to them that they were humans. Right. So so if Deckard's a replicant, he only has normal human strength and Rachel, from everything we see in the first movie, only seems to have normal human strength. But why right, would so this, you, why, why yeah. would you make why would you make uh you know a Blade Runner with normal strength? Why wouldn't you make um a Blade Runner with superhuman strength? It, you know, you know. I think emotionally, like from a you know to to be satisfied with the first film emotionally, for me, I think Deckard has to be a human, right? Because if you look at the film carefully, all the humans are extremely cold. They're, they're like brutal and calculating. And it's the replicants that, um, really, um, 
have the strongest feelings. So it's like if, you know, if he's a human, I think it, it fits into that. On the other hand, the ambiguity could work. But if he's, if he's a hundred percent replicant, I feel like it almost subverts its own, its own, uh, you know, theme there. So know. it has huge implications, though, right. based on the idea of a child, right? Um, if a human and a robot can make a baby, that's one thing. If a robot and a robot can make a baby, that's a totally different thing. Um, but either way, the the replicants aren't uh, aren't you know they're able to basically create their own future without need of. But but the whole plot people. hinges on this idea of of this miracle and this child, and so what kind of it seems strange to me is they're hinging all the stakes of the entire film on an ambiguous point, right? Like all these people that are gathered in the sewers are gathering their armies. I mean, sorry, all these replicants that are gathering their armies, um, for a future robot uprising. <laughs> um, they, uh, this is all based on their belief in that, that this child has been created. And well, yet we don't know, but we I mean, don't that's... know whether the child <laughs> yeah. is, uh, so it, it, yeah, I mean, no, this could be huge. I, I'm like getting into it. This is exactly the beauty of it, huh? <laughs> uh, I'm just, I'm like, yeah, I'm a little too. Well, that uh, is, that is the OCD question, right? About it. Right. That is the question is, is, uh, Anna's is a... her name, Anna <laughs> Staline or Staline. Is it an angel uh, or is it a person? Yeah. Well, and the is, guy is she calls 100%? them angels a lot. Sorry. Yeah. Like, is she a hundred percent? uh replicant like uh, are both of her parents replicants or is she just half replicant mm -hmm. and you know is is her immune system really compromised because of that or is that just a, a way that she's been protected yeah actually sarah could you expand on what you were just saying about christianity i think that's interesting well i mean you know it, it, we we have entire religions um you know plural uh based around the uh embracing some kind of myth and it's always some kind of origin story um and you know so the idea that that these underground androids are uh you know hinged on this belief is very believable and it's very human yeah. um and so it's it's you know it's 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 a tie-in that, that this happens in science fiction all the time um and so i i don't find that implausible at all it's like divine origins, right? Like, yeah. So, so Leto calls, or is it Leto or Leto? Do you guys? I've heard it Leto, but I could be okay, wrong. Okay. Leto. About this. Great. Yeah. I don't care. Leto. So like, he's constantly calling the replicants angels, right? And so you think about like, is, is Jesus Christ a man or was he like divine or, or what? Right. And like, and of course, like, I don't know. I, you run into this all the time. I, I can't stop singing shiny off the Moana soundtrack as a result of having, kids and there's and there's you know you can't expect a, a demigod to beat a decapod is like <laughs> a line that runs through my head every day unfortunately but like the idea of a demigod the idea of, of having divine origins like it's definitely you know a common theme in religion and in art and it's i think it's showing up here well, well there's a lot of yeah go ahead Sorry. well and among early christians getting back to sarah's thing like uh there was a huge fight about whether Jesus was fully divine or was he like fully human and fully divine or something like that. And yeah. so like you can get these movements built around um, very ambiguous, if not contradictory ideas about the, the savior if, figure. 
it's like having an entire religion based on how fast ravens fly, according to, you know, the, uh, all of the people fighting about the Game of Thrones finale. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the original film had a lot of Christian mythology too, right? Because you have the, this idea of Batty as the fallen angel. And then there's that scene where he sticks the, the nail through his hand, you know, like crucifixion. <laughs> um, it's, I, I think the, the whole idea is, is full of Christian mythology. Well, right. And, and I, I feel like this movie almost works better as mythology than as like an extrapolation of the future or something, right? That it does feel, especially as the movie goes on, it becomes more about the, the sort of chosen one and the divine birth and kinds of those kinds of ideas. It feels more about a story of humans and angels and demigods and demons and things than it does about the, you know, the, totally, the, the future of AI, yeah. you know, that's totally my feeling too. And I'm like, I'm huge into robots and AI and all that. And then, you know, you go and you're like, okay, this is what's really funny to me is I felt like Blade Runner 2049 has a lot more in common with RUR, like the original play uh, that introduced the word robot from the 1920s mm. than it has to do with um, any modern science fiction, mainly because the, in RUR, the whole thing is about, these replicants that are indistinguishable from humans that are oppressed as slaves and then they rise up and kill every human on the planet, only they can't procreate. And so the, they leave one human alive, the scientist who made them, and he works with his own species nearly extinct. He works feverishly to figure out a way to allow these robots to procreate and make babies. And it's like, yeah, whoever wrote this <laughs> was aware of RUR is my feeling. Like, um, which cracks me up because it's like, that's like the first mention of the word robot in English. I mean, it's, 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 it's really the first. Yeah, but they, they never really use the word robot in the, in the film. I mean, um, I, I, I think that, you yeah, know, ro true. robot implies true. something mechanical. Yeah. But I, I mean, one of the things I thought that was really interesting and, and a really amazing directorial choice was, you know, they didn't, like, obviously the, the 2019 of, of, the first Blade Runner is very different from the one where we're going to approach in, in many ways. Uh, so they said, okay, you know what? We're just going to run with that future. So it's like, like the timeline split, right? So in this 2049, the Soviet Union still, still exists, right? And to, it's like different chronology, but it's also the future, which I found kind of fascinating because usually it's like we're extrapolating from our present, but this is like, mm -hmm. no, this is, this is a different, this is a different universe. You know, well, there's there's Pan Am and Atari, I, I right? Cool. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, actually, I want to pick up Matt on something you just said, where you said that the replicants are not machines, but of course, there is the character um, Joy in the movie, yeah, who is just a purely mechanical, um, you know, character, uh, intelligence or whatever, and and so it's it's sort of an open question: is she? uh like quote unquote human as well or is she like a or 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 is she just a a philosophical zombie you know she has no inner life she just does what what her programming code uh suggests and things actually daniel you're you're our phd yeah. <laughs> in robotics what did, what did you think of joy versus um k for example uh joy was my, like my favorite character like i loved in fact that dynamic with her felt the question of whether she's whether her feelings mean anything and whether when she says something to, uh, 
to K, whether it means anything, that dynamic was, was probably my favorite. I, I mean, whether Deckard's a replicant or not, like, I could kind of take it or leave it because it doesn't really, it doesn't have anything to do with my life. But right now, you know, we're seeing real applications that are, that are kind of like joy. Um, in these AI personal assistants that are slowly getting smarter and smarter. So I'm talking about Alexa and like, you know, the Google Home. And so, okay, like, I love it, first of all. So like, first of all, they leave it totally ambiguous, just like everything. So for instance, she tells him what he needs to hear. She, she's the one who says out loud, if you were real, that means you have a soul. That, I, that means you're worth love. That means, you know, all this stuff. She says his, his interior, you know, thoughts out loud, his dreams and aspirations. And, and that's, that's so funny because like, uh, then right after that scene, you see a big, uh, they, they take the time to show a part where, uh, you know, you, there's an advertisement and you realize that this joy thing is a product that's for sale. And it says as the, in the advertising, she will say everything you need to hear or something like that. She's every, and like, and they literally say that, you know? And so the question is, you know, if you have this AI that's telling you what you need to hear and telling you that she loves you, you know, like, and saying it with so much emotion and just completely, uh, convincing, like, does it mean anything? And, and I love that question because that's a question that we're going to have to answer in our lifetimes. I feel like, you know, building fully, completely realistic, like impossible to d distinguish between people and robots. That's probably never going to happen. Honestly, it doesn't make any sense to build a robot out of DNA. It's cheaper to just make a person, you know, we do it every day. Um, so seeing this really made me excited. And then one more little point about it is um, I've seen something similar in uh, the movie AI. And I loved it too. When Gigolo Joe uh, gets hired by this woman and he shows up and he looks at her and he says, you are the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. And he's a robot and it means nothing, right? For him to say that, he'll say that to anybody that he sees. But it also means everything because he really fucking means it because he's programmed to believe it with every, with every fiber of his being. And so, so it's this great, like paradox, right? Uh, his opinion counts for nothing, yet unlike any other human being in the world who might say that but would never mean it, he really means it, even though it's worth nothing. So anyway, I love that paradox. I love that character joy. I love how that whole arc played out. Well, it was we'll one of my this, favorite parts of the movie. This is something I was talking about with Adam Savage in the last episode, but I feel like because of movies like Blade Runner have conditioned everyone to feel like robots are going to be the next um, like marginalized social group that we have to fight for civil rights for. And that in the near future, the, the situation is much more likely to be we're going to have a problem with people saying like, no, this is a person, this is a person when it's not at all. It's just a pro it's just software. Yeah, no, running a program. Actually, yeah, it's the, the fear that you have is, um, you know, that you fall in love and then she's constantly asking you to drink a Coke. Have you had a Coke today? And like that is way more, by the way, I mean, I think that's way more likely and a way more, way more realistic scenario to be afraid of, which is that we are going to be grossly manipulated through, you know, as AI and as these products gain the ability to communicate with us like people and to pull those levers of emotion and gesture and face recognition, emotion recognition, uh, much more complex text to speech where they can put emotion into their voices. 
Like they're going to pull all those human levers. And we are, you think about human beings, we are completely uninoculated for this. We have spent like a couple hundred, maybe 300,000 years as Homo sapiens interacting via speech and, and gestures only with human beings. Never in the history of evolution, never in the history of humankind has there been a moment where we spoke to an artifact in the environment and it spoke back to us. So when that happens, we're going to be completely unable, I think, to, uh, to defend ourselves, at least for a little while. And that may involve people, uh, you know, buying a lot of products because they're <laughs> in love, because they're literally in love. And that scares the shit out of me. So, you know, yeah. see, Sarah, what did you, Sarah, what did you think of Joy? I thought she was great. Um, you know, it's funny. There was a, uh, review I read this morning that one of my friends posted, um, you know, and talking about sort of the lack of, and I think it was actually in Wired. Um, it was something like the, uh, the, yeah, like the politics of Blade Runner aren't that futuristic, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, of course they're not. They're not supposed to be. It's, it is not a, um, you know, we, we, we should not presuppose that the goal of science fiction should be to morally instruct us. And so I am not going to be one of those feminists who has a hard time or has a problem with this movie. Um, because I think that the goal of Blade Runner, if it's going to be true to Blade Runner, which it is, thank, thank goodness, uh, is to actually show the world as it is, as it is. And, and, and I think that a lot of feminists have a hard time with that. They had a hard time with it with, you know, in Game of Thrones, where Game of Thrones is designed to be a very patriarchal society because it's reflecting on and talking about patriarchy. Okay. So Blade Runner is the same. Obviously, if we have a world where, you know, it's a, a, a world that's like ours, race, racism still exists. Sexism still exists. You know, objectifying women still exists. Um, but one of the things that the writer of that piece said, um, was, you know, this idea that, um, this women's dis disposability that, you know, they only sort of touched on, but they didn't really explore. Um, and the writer was sort of, um, interpreting the reaction of Wallace and the newborn woman, um, as this horrible thing that was all about Wallace. But I think that everybody in the theater, was horrified for that newborn. And I think that the fear that the newborn was, um, putting out there was palpable. Um, and you know, it was a horrifying scene. It was absolutely disgusting. Um, and so I, I can't really imagine having that interpretation of the film, walking away from that and thinking that that was, was not about objectification and about using, um, other, you know, races and other sexes for your ends. Um, so, you know, to me, the, what makes Blade Runner prescient is its bleakness. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think as a feminist, I want science fiction to show us a mirror. I don't want it to, you know, break the fourth wall and tell us, oh, by the way, this is bad. And it shouldn't have to do that. Um, so, but I love Joy. I think that, you know, she is also designed to be ambiguous, you know, I mean, especially in the end, you know, when you see that over large projection of her, sort of, you know, almost laughing at Kay. And, you know, that whole scene is just, you know, brutal um, because it it really is meant to instill doubt in us again that, okay, wait, she was programmed to do this. Um, and what a horribly lonely feeling that would be. But, you know, I think that um, 
it's, it is designed to be ambiguous for a reason. And we are, you know, it, it works very well to make us question, you know, what is real about affection and what has been bought and paid for and designed to please us. Right. I thought that that article was, I mean, I thought it had some legitimate points about representation. I think yeah. I, I agree with you that, um, you know, th th it maybe wasn't giving the movie enough credit in certain things. I mean, I, I thought I don't remember the article mentioning anything about Anna being the chosen one and having a pretty complex, interesting um, personality and scenes and so on. Um, but um, I, there, there was it reminds me of the um, the article was mentioning this scene where Robin Wright's character, who is otherwise a very um, sort of strong female character was kind of yeah. hitting on Ryan Gosling <laughs> in a way that sort mm -hmm. of stuck, stuck out to me as odd. I don't know what anyone else thought of that. Well, she sees him as, you know, disposable to a certain level. And so she's going to objectify him just as women have been objectified and by people in positions of power forever. Yeah. I, I felt like she was just, she hit on him basically because it was convenient. Like she had a drink. She was like, Maybe I'll, you know, nail this piece of furniture <laughs> on my way home. And yeah. then he's like, no, thanks. And then she's like, fine, bye. Like, it, it wasn't breaking her heart, you know? Doesn't yeah. he have to do what she says from her from her point of view? Like, he's he didn't like say genetically no. engineered or something to follow orders or something, right? Yeah. And I'm sure if she had made it an order, he would have to. Yeah. So I think she did. All she said was, I think she said, what happens if I finish this? And like, she was, she was, she was basically. Yeah, like she's basically doing the same thing that, um, you know, in the same way the relationship between Joy and Kay, like she was saying, would it be real if I finish this? Like, that's the way I read it. Like, like, would you make the decision to fool around with me? Like, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, like, she wants to have her cake and eat it too. She wants to be his choice. She right. wants what, what the Borg Queen wanted out of Captain Picard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I felt like the, you, you know, they introduced this idea, though, at the beginning of the movie that the new model replicants have to obey orders. And it felt like that did not maintain itself throughout the whole movie. It felt like it kind of like petered out. And, and it, it seems like toward the end of the movie is the replicants. It seems like they didn't really. Well, have to you know, th that especially with love. I mean, she just walked into the police station and murders people constantly. Like, <laughs> Uh, how do you get away with that? Also, I, I mean, I guess that that Neander, like, I, he could have made her special or something so that she can break all the rules. But how do you just walk around murdering the police chief and murdering people? Well, she uh, said she was going to twist what happened, right? She said she was going to say that something else happened. So you get the impression that she's very smart. She knows how the rules work and she knows how to bend them when she needs to. Wait, exactly. She's a, she's a replicant, right? She's a replicant, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. But okay. also the fact is that the police department is heavily dependent upon replicants to do their job. So I'm sure the the Wallace Corporation has all sorts of, you know, back doors into the into the system. Um you know, because w without replicants they they wouldn't be able to uh do their job. But but how oh, are yes, you gonna I mean, how, how are you gonna have a replicant <laughs> resistance movement if they can just all be ordered to stop? Yeah, resisting? that's true. <laughs> There's got to be yeah. a governor that's coming off somewhere. It's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> they they <laughs> did play fast and loose with that that concept of they must obey. 
Well, there was that little video at the beginning, uh, you know, the whatever the background videos that were on YouTube, which those are sort of criminally underviewed. Um, did you guys get a chance to to watch those? Um, yeah, David, I, you I watched them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so like, you know, there's the part, there's the one that demonstrates that exact point, right? Where, um, where Wallace, you know, does his trick again of, um, of killing a, uh, a replicant in order to make a point. Um, he seems to do that a lot. <laughs> it's a pretty messy sort of way to make a point. It does actually remind me of Silicon Valley when that guy's always bringing in, um, elephants, you know, in order to make his point. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> or wildlife. <laughs> get, 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 a, get a replicant in here. Uh, somebody give me a knife. I got a point to make. Um, and I'm going to be able to make it by stabbing this guy, making this guy stab himself. It's going to involve stabbing, you know. Yeah, but, but see, so, that struck me as very unpersuasive because his whole agenda is to persuade people that the replicants, that he can be trusted basically to produce replicants that aren't going to hurt anyone. And it seems like that would just freak freak the fuck out of everybody, you know? I mean... I don't know. I wouldn't give that guy permission to start manufacturing these things if, <laughs> if there's, there's like blood spraying all over my conference room. I think he was appealing yeah. though to their to their desire for power. Like I think in that scene, you know, he was making a very deliberate choice, and you know that's part of part of what makes him the quote unquote evil visionary because he recognized that okay, if I appeal to their power in this, sure they might act shocked, but they'll get over it in two minutes. They'll think about it and they'll go, okay, he's right. Also, the question is, does Kay actually disobey any orders? Like once um, Robin Wright's character dies, I mean, whose orders he orders are he disobeying, right? Yeah, clearly he won't. If somebody on the street said, hey, slit your throat, he wouldn't do it because right. people you'd, hate you'd, his guts. You'd have to have some it. kind of like, you'd have to have some kind of, uh, you know, master slave relationship and he kept calling her madam so basically maybe he was Jeez. just key keyed to her she was like you know some kind of programming like you know he had to obey her and and she said you know give me your gun and your badge you have 48 hours and then she dies before that 48 hours is up so well, i suspect there'd be a chain of command like you anything would think. Else. yeah so this this um on this note, I would love to ask you guys a question I've been wondering about since I saw the film. So we've established that these replicants do have to obey orders, but you can tell sometimes they don't want to do it, right? And there's that moment when, um, you know, Neander guts the newborn and love is watching and she cries, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think she cries a few times. There's kind of quite a bit of stoic tears going down the old face. Whenever Why? she watches death, I think. I think because she genuinely feels, I think that she's, she recognizes herself as a slave. I think she, my, the way I read that scene w w where uh, she's observing Neander uh, stab that, um, that replicant is that she's, she generally feels bad for this creation that is just this woman, this, this being that is just exists just for a point and she's crying, but she can't express this because she's a total slave. And then again, when she when she kills Robin Wright, she cries because I think she genuinely doesn't want to have to do this. Um, I mean, that's the way I, that's the way I saw it. Although she does a second later, like basically drop Robin Wright's face on the desk. So I was like, okay, maybe maybe that's not the maybe that's not the correct read on it. But I I I get the sense that there's something under the surface with her that she's feeling. She has these intense emotions that she cannot express because she's a slave. Well, she's mimicking the emotions of her master. You know, I mean, she does the thing with the kiss. 
uh, in the end when she tries to uh, kill, you know, Kay, um, mimicking absolutely Jared Leto's uh, kiss of the newborn mm-hmm. and this sort of disposable mm-hmm. way. Um, so I think that it's quite possible that, you know, either he sort of imbibed her with, uh, imbued her with a, a sense of his own uh, moral leanings, or she has been programmed to be so enamored of him that she's just replicating what he is doing while simultaneously questioning, what am I doing? Why does this hurt when I do it? You know, that kind of thing. I mean, they, they, in the original, they said, you know, they're not supposed to have emotions. And then obviously that's completely wrong. Um, and so it's possible that in the, you know, in the process of taking away emotions and then implanting various memories and everything, it can be very confusing. I think that's brilliant because it actually explains why that scene even happened. Because otherwise, there's absolutely no reason for Wallace to gut that replicant. He clearly did it as some sort of sadistic thing. He wasn't like checking. He wasn't doing anything scientific. He gutted her in front of his his pet robot, his pet replicant. uh, And he... You know, he shared all of his philosophical exposition to a replicant who probably already knows all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but he did also commit this violent act in front of her, which, I mean, the only reason I could think of for that scene, besides conveying exposition to an audience about what an evil guy he is, uh, would be to somehow emotionally, you know, scar love and make her capable of doing similar acts or something. I well, we do, we do the same thing to children. I mean, look, you know, if you want an example from, from, uh, science fiction is, you know, Ned Stark executing the, uh, guy who ran at the very beginning the of Game scene. of Thrones yeah. mm-hmm. in front of his children very proudly to say, this is what we do. This is how we do it. And we, you know, the executioner always swings, uh, you know, the man who mm-hmm. decides to, to, to kill is the one who does the, the dirty deed. But this is one thing that strikes me both about Blade Runner 2049 and the original Blade Runner. It's like I, I was reading reviews of this movie all day today, and I've never seen so many reviews that were so long and detailed <laughs> as for this movie. And it yeah. feels like both of these movies um, put the, put a big burden on the audience to come up with these elaborate structures to explain what's going on in the movie. And yeah. I, I can't. I don't, I'm not sure if that's a bug or a feature or not. I feel like it's probably both to some degree. It's totally a feature, especially <laughs> the inclusion, the the inclusion of of pale fire. Um, like it it wasn't just a a random you know literary drop like sometimes movies do, where they sort of throw something in there to make it seem intelligent. Like there there are so oh. many parallels to pale fire. Sorry, sorry, explain where that comes in the movie, Sarah. Oh, sorry the uh, the book that. That um, that Kay shows joy, and you know makes the joke. Well, you know you hate this book. Um, is Nabokov's Pale Fire, and the whole book is the same kind of structure. Of you have a you know character who the reader is not sure if they're real or imagined. You have a unreliable narrator who is uh, interpreting the poem left behind by this by this poet, this character. Um, and it's one of those books where you are not sure what is real and what is not. And there is constant ambiguity that is on purpose. So you have people 
who have studied these books for, you know, decades, still disagreeing about what it means. And, you know, it's, there are a number of things that, um, if you've read Pale Fire, that you would pick up on the movie and going, oh my God, that's totally a reference to that. I mean, even the, the lines from the, uh, the test, the baseline test mm. are directly from the, uh, the lines in Pale Fire. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of built-in ambiguity, but then there's also a lot of stuff that's maybe just a mistake. And like, that's the, <laughs> that's where we all live, uh, is, is trying to figure out the difference between those two things. Um, and trying to figure out whether it's genius or whether it's, uh, a bunch well, of crap. <laughs> well, even, even in Pale Fire, there's a, a moment where the character draws a bunch of meaning from something that happens and then later finds out that it was a typo. And so that is, that is literally a theme in the book is, you know, when we base, uh, all these, this meaning in our lives from something that is, that is a mistake. And, you know, the first lines of, of Palefire, I was the shadow of the wax wing slain by the false azure of the window pane. I was the smudge of ashen fluff and I lived on, flew on in the reflected sky. And so this image of this bird flying into a window and crashing and dying, but living on in this alternate universe of the reflected sky, like it's, you know, it's the, the levels of which this book connects to Blade Runner are just intense. And I have a lot of respect for whoever made that decision. That's pretty amazing. And oh, by the way, the, those baseline tests, I didn't think they would ever top the Voight-Kampf test, but, but <laughs> I think they did. <laughs> oh, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also just want to mention one thing I really liked about this movie in contrast to some, because there have been a whole bunch of, you know, sort of um, sequels to old, you know, to like classic movies of the 80s and so on. And one thing I really liked about this movie, as opposed to The Force Awakens, one of the big problems I had with The Force Awakens was how many fourth wall breaking winks at the audience there were, where they're like, hey, remember this from Star Wars? Remember this from Star Wars? And I felt like this movie did a really good job of you recognize all these things from Blade Runner. It's, you know, it's totally Blade Runner. You're like, I recognize this. I recognize that. But I never felt like there were any moments where the director was like inserting himself into the movie to wink at the audience or the characters were winking at the audience. It always felt completely. Yeah. Believed, it, it just felt seamless. It's just like a yeah. seamless transition from the there, previous I, movie. There was one point and and maybe this is just because. I had seen, I've seen the original so many times. It's just, um, you know, when Kay is laying on the steps at the end and he, like they play the, the tears and rain music. And I thought that was a little too on the note for me. I don't know how you guys <laughs> felt about that. You know what I'm talking about? I didn't pick up on it until after I, and I read some reviews, yeah. the tears and snow. <laughs> tears um, and snow, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, Overall, like, I thought the music, like, the Vangelis soundtrack for the original, uh, you know, I used to just put that on and listen to it. It's just atmospheric. You get so in the world. This music, I, I already downloaded the CD and listened yeah. to it a couple times. It is really, like, h hard to listen to. <laughs> but I, lo I love it. But it's, it's not the same kind of music. And, you know, one of the things about the first film that I think the part of the reason that it was copied so much is just you have this this visual appeal that is even though it's a dystopia it's it's sexy right the, the original there's a sexiness to it there's, there's something about that world that is appealing the new film 
I do not want to live in that world. That is that is a true dystopia. That is like that every part of that world. I was like, nope, nope, <laughs> don't don't want to go there. Don't want to live there. Don't want to. Experience You're right. That. It wasn't as elegant, was it? But it, I, but I like that. I, I I think that they they really showed that this was a dystopian world thirty years before this film. Imagine what happened after that. Like it just things got worse. There's blizzards all the time. There's like they have to have these giant seawalls to protect the, you know um you know the the water from coming in they have these massive garbage dumps and and um you know the this orphanage which i which i think was going to sell uh k like a child um so so like it's it's gotten like real i mean maybe all that stuff was in the first film just we didn't see it but it's like it's gotten so much worse and i thought you know kudos to the to the um you know, the directors and the set designers, et cetera, for, for not being afraid to take it to that conclusion, to, well, to, and to yet, continue. Though, there were yeah. animals, right? I mean, well, there were bees at least, right? That's I, what, I yeah. they were real. I, I, I have a question about that, and I don't know how much uh, David wants us to, to talk about that, because it, it, it might be like, okay, the, we see the bees, right? And then he sticks his hand in the thing, and there are bees on his hand, and there's a quick cut away. So whenever I see like a quick cut away from something that intense, I'm like, okay, that was important. And then if you remember at the very beginning of the film, Kay finds a little buttercup flower on under the tree. Mm-hmm. And if you think about this for a second, the bees, right? The bees need flowers, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so Deckard, my theory is that Deckard was visiting Rachel's grave, right? He had, uh, who else put the Yeah, flower? yeah. That's a good theory. Um, cause flowers wouldn't even exist in this world. Yeah, that's, it didn't hit me right away that that would be complete. What hit me was every one of those bees, if they're really alive, are worth like a million dollars. And like, if I was him, I would be scooping those fuckers up like they, you know, well, whatever. I mean, you know, he's not that interested in money, I guess, but you know, and then there's the dog. (laughs) Yeah. And then the dog, but he also says, Deckard says, not much to do here at night. So it makes you say, well, what's he doing during the day? farming bees maybe he's doing that like you know well, i think he was making a reference to it being vegas or whatever right like and the fact that it used to be a yeah a I, I mean again you know you have this these these lines that can be taken you know in 12 <laughs> well, different ways actually that's my, my favorite line of the whole film which i think sums everything up is when he he looks k looks at deckard and looks at the dog and says is it real and deckard says i don't know <laughs> like that's the you said, in a him? nutshell yeah. <laughs> right there is it real i don't know you know <laughs> well right <laughs> you can and, sit here and talk about it all day <laughs> and speaking of the world matt i mean i don't think we've even said that this is like one of the most amazing looking movies i've ever seen in my life i mean my jaw yeah. was just on the floor for <laughs> yeah 60 percent of the shots in this movie it's just so i could not believe what i was seeing when yeah. I, I love it when when robin wright is like she's like why don't you come back before the storm? And then you just see him flying back and then is just building after building after building. And you get these little glimpses into the, the crevices where you see these, you know, the, the, the famous, you know, neon and projected billboards that we know, but that's just like peeking between the cracks and it's just building after building after building. And then finally we reach, you know, the skyscrapers that, that we, we know from Blade Runner. You're like, Oh my God, this is just, ridiculously large and i just thought it was just stunning and and and, uh jaw-dropping and you know one of my favorite scenes in the whole film is when Kay says to joy 
want to go for a ride and then they cut and you see like the water i guess they open the the uh floodgates for the for the wall and the water just starts pouring through and this intense note plays and then you just see him flying like over the wall and then they look up and there and then you see joy looking up and there's like this ship but it's half in fog and you don't know what it is and they uh, just yeah i mean stunning amazing yeah, yeah well like in the last episode adam savage he had seen the movie early and he was and he was saying if uh you know this deserves to win for best cinematography the oscar yeah. right and it's like well yeah like yeah like what is it t if this doesn't win the oscar <laughs> for best cinematography like what does it take like what is even in contention i mean maybe i haven't i don't, I don't watch every movie but I, I can't even imagine what would beat this for best cinematography yeah and it takes so much restraint to you know the 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 fact that they were able to do so much new with it while making it look like a continuation of the world they set up in 1982 is, you know, to go back to the idea of this being a miracle, knowing that what we know very cynically about how things work in Hollywood and how often things are, you know, sort of pushed to satisfy focus groups. Um, you know, the original was visually inspired in part by the Nighthawks painting by Edward Hopper. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see that thread carried through perfectly in this. But at the same time, you know, it's also very new and it's just absolutely gorgeous. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I feel like we have to talk about how uh, I think we all loved this movie pretty much. I loved it anyway. Um, <laughs> and, but I think as Matt maybe mentioned, it's not doing that well at the box office. Uh, what does Sarah, what do you think of, what do you make of the, of this movie? Not like underperforming at the box office. Well, I mean, I think that we forget just as we get lost in our little filter bubbles, how few people, you know, in terms of the actual numbers are the kind of person who is obsessed with Blade Runner. And, you know, has seen all of these wonderful cult films that, you know, these science fiction films that we, we, we talk about so much and, and we love so much. Um, and it's, I think that it's just, uh, one of those things where it's like, well, first of all, it's two hours and 45 minutes, which means that they had fewer, uh, show times, uh, you know, just in terms of the actual physical number of, of, um, show times that, that the theaters are able to pump out. Um, but, you know, it just, they made a, a sequel to a cult classic. What did they expect? And then they actually, you know, deigned to make it as beautiful, if not slightly more beautiful in some ways than the original, um, and took itself seriously and, you know, was not designed to work with the fast and furious crowd, you know? And so I think that, I think, I hope that they were sort of hedging their bets. Um, and I think that what is going to happen is that as people start to talk about it, more and more people will see it and it will have kind of a slow burn. Yeah. I think it's going to have a long shelf life. I think that, uh, like Sarah said, um, there's, there's a lot of review buzz and, and fan buzz about it and people who may not necessarily um, see a film like Blade Runner might check it out just because of that. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's also, you know, uh, DVD releases and merchandise, I'm, you know, <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah, I think it's fitting, right, with the, uh, the way that the original came out and, uh, flopped and then kind of steadily grew over the years. I think, uh, 
it w- why would you expect this one to be different? <laughs> I think it'll yeah. do the same thing. Well, I mean, like one of our listeners, Zach Chapman, posted kind of a funny comment on Facebook where he uh, he loved the movie, but he says his wife uh, uh, thought it was pretentious and boring. So <laughs> I'll, I'll throw that out there. Do you, do you think there's any validity to the charge of pretentiousness against this movie? I think that the film w- wants to achieve something and tries very hard to do that. And, and um, you know... I'm paraphrasing something I read recently, but it's, it's just, you know, um, I'd rather see a spectacular fail, failure than a mediocre film, right? So, but I don't think it's, I don't think Blade Runner is a failure. I think it, it tries very, very hard to do something and I believe it succeeds. Not everyone is willing, as I said earlier, is not everyone is willing to, um, do the work, I guess, to, to piece the story apart or, or to, to, you know, not everyone is going into a film um, expecting that they, you know, they they might want a Fast and Furious type of film, and that's totally fine. That's not what Blade Runner is. I mean, do you think they could have made any of those long shots any shorter? They could have, but I don't think that it would have improved it for the rest of us. I think that again, it would have been about making that making the movie for focus groups, and I'm yeah. so glad that they didn't. I get bored fast. I like have very little patience, uh, yeah. unfortunately, and it never made me bored. So I didn't feel like it was pretentious at all. I felt like, you know, there's some movies, there's like this type of movie, like Inception, where you're, it's so thrilling and fast that you're along for the ride. And then later you go, none of that shit made sense, right? And <laughs> you feel bummed. Like, I think part of the reason that Blade Runner, the original and this new one are going to be a slow burn is that whenever you get out of it, you're not, you, the house of cards doesn't fall apart. You don't think, oh, all that shit was made no sense when I, when I really think about it. It's just a bunch of plot holes. Instead, that ambiguity makes your mind go, you know, and you start talking about it with your friends. And then if your friend hasn't seen it, well, then they damn well better go see it so that you can talk about it because, <laughs> because I've got yeah. things I need to talk about. And so like, you yeah. know, I feel like that's the way that this, that is yeah. like the DNA. That's how this virus spreads. Right? Yeah. It and passed the totally piss test, by the way. Like, <laughs> like to me, like, okay, so it's two hours and 45 minutes. Both my partner and I had to pee, Oh, I got up and you know, halfway it. through and neither pay? of us could go to the bathroom because it was just, we didn't want to miss any of it. I was so glad that I went to see it a second time so that I knew exactly which scene I would time my pee in. So right. that I wouldn't have to watch it twice, really which was the when... scene with the newborn, by the way, because it was that disturbing. I was oh, like, nope, yeah. don't need to see that twice. <laughs> I peed as soon as he made the realization that he was a, a human. Like, uh, and then I was like, okay, I, that, I felt that building and building. And I'm like, I got, I can't pee before if, I pee, if I'm gone while he realizes he's human. What, you know, so like as soon as he made his realization, I made my realization and I, got up and <laughs> and ran um, to the bathroom. I don't know what I missed. I was, you know, the next two minutes are blank for me. <laughs> I, I want to agree, though, with what you said, Daniel, about like no movie I, I can remember in recent memory has forced my mind to fixate on it afterward and think through it the way that this one has. And like you're saying, I keep coming, I keep having things where I'm like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. And then I think about it some more. I'm like, well, no, if you look at it this way, it does make yeah. sense. Yeah, and, talk I mean, about it for an hour and a half. <laughs> like, like, well, yeah, like one example of that was that I thought, well, uh, how can K be stronger than Dave Batista? 
if he's either, you know, the son of uh, Deckard and Rachel or the, you know, or the, or the son of two older replicants or the son of a replicant and a, a human. But they're like, wait, but no, but no, he's not the son of them. He only yeah. thinks he is. And I'm like, wait, so that can, you know, you can explain it that way, you know, and I keep like, you know, well, turning that things. Was the re- oh, good, sorry. No, no, go ahead. That was the realization that I love, by the way, to take this all the way back to the to the beginning of our conversation. Like I said, cardinal sin to have the big reveal be that your person was a robot the whole time. It's more interesting to reveal that your that your robot was a person the whole time, <laughs> and then to snatch that away from him too. Uh, by the time you get to the end, so um, so yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was a well, pretty interesting uh, version of that trope. Well, yeah, and to make you make make the hero think that they're the chosen one, and then they find out, like I don't know, twenty minutes before the end of the movie, that no, it's actually somebody else. You know, well, a lot of Philip yeah. K. Dick stuff is is tragic in the end, and that doesn't usually play very well with movie audiences. But they were true to it. I mean, it was tragic. Like he wasn't the one. <laughs> like, sorry, dude, you might as well just lay down and die. Like, <laughs> you you're the catalyst. You you know, you're the one that started something. Like, bye. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that aspect of it that he wasn't the chosen one. I thought that was pretty profound. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Um, I'm kind of curious. What do you guys think about the challenge of making this movie in a landscape where this idea of uh, robots who seem human and so on is so familiar now, from Battlestar Galactica to Westworld to it seems like every anime movie is about is some some sort of like iteration of Blade Runner. Like, uh, it, it, it seems like it takes something special to to add something new at this point. And it seems, and it seems like we all agree that this movie uh, earns that. Um, Sarah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that the question will ever get old. Like the essential question that is the heart of all those movies is never going to get old in part because, you know, we, we talked about religion and everything and this whole idea of people having this um, ultimate question of who are we in the universe? Where did we come from? Were we created? Were we designed? All of that you know, is so part of the human experience that we forget about it. We forget because we think it's it's part of something else. Uh, and so when it constantly props up in science fiction, we almost think of it as a trope, but it's not. It's, you know, it is something very deep and essential about, uh, about humanity. Um, and so to me, I think the interesting thing is, is the different ways in which that question is explored. You know, Westworld is very different from, um, Blade Runner, even though it has obviously a lot of similarities, even just in the the physicality of the robots that, you know, you open them up in the middle and they are machines, you know, um, whereas part of the appeal, I think, of Blade Runner is that biology side that we don't necessarily get as often unless it's in something like Orphan Black, you know, or anything involving, you know, the ethics of cloning. Yeah, I think they ignored it. There are no robots in this movie. Like I said, like, they don't focus in the world building on robotics at all. So like if, and I love that because what they did was they let the theme dictate the world, right? So this, all the philosophical themes are appearing as a technology that, you know, they're called replicants. They don't even say the word robot. There are no, if I were doing world building for this and I knew that there were super advanced, uh, human-like androids that were available, I would think, what are all the models leading up to these? Wouldn't they be emptying the trash? Wouldn't they be doing, 
uh, menial stuff. They wouldn't have human faces. That, but there'd be robots everywhere, right? If you've advanced the field of robotics to the level where you can create a replicant, where's all the other stuff that came along the way, right? <laughs> all the special purpose robots. There aren't any. There are no robots that appear in this. They're not in the backgrounds. They're not walking dogs. They're not washing windows or building buildings. And uh, I think that's fine, but I think they largely avoid competing on that front because there really aren't robots in this movie. But there are AIs, and I, and I think that, you know, um, when, you know, some scientists say we're as few as, you know, 20 years away from jet artificial general intelligence that's greater than, you know, human intelligence, um, you know, I think that it was a wise choice to add the character of Joy, just to add that extra layer to say, okay, um, here, here's another way to look at the same question. It's um, also most like the book. Like, in order, you know, instead of having electric sheep, you have electric girlfriends. <laughs> um, Daniel, what do you think? Uh, AI, human level AI in 20 years? Sounds like bullshit to me. Oh, no, I'm, I'm with it. I think, I think at least in limited domains, they're already tricking us and they'll continue to trick us. I mean, what'll happen is, We'll just keep corralling our wagons in tighter and tighter and saying, well, that's not real human level intelligence, um, you know, just because it can, uh, do everything I do. <laughs> you know? Um, and so like, I think they're going to keep adding, um, one ability at a time iteratively. I'm not saying there's going to be some friggin' singularity. I don't think that's going to happen, but, um, they're going to keep getting more and more abilities stitched together until you finally go, well, all right, what's left? And I think that 20 years on that timeline is, you know, in terms of having like a conversation with a, with an AI, I think we'll be able to get there. I mean, but do you think that in 20 years there'll be AIs who are making a podcast as good as this one without a whole team of experts training them? To <laughs> no, David, no, buddy, uh-uh. You're no irreplaceable, David. <laughs> no. <laughs> how, do, how do we know you're not an AI already? So, that's a good point. Yeah, so that's David, a good point. We, need, we need to the, give the, you a void comp test. The way to stay sane, the way to stay sane in the face of uh, encroaching robot ability and skill level is to convince yourself that you're going to work with the robots. You're going to use these new podcasting tools to uh, to make the best podcast that anyone's ever heard before. But you're a crucial part of this. Um, you're the meaty center of this whole equation. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, you know, that's my feeling whenever people ask me, what, well, how are you going to feel whenever the robots can write your novels for you? You know, I'll just be like, well, I had to write the first ones to seed the training algorithm. So technically I should get the royalties. <laughs> my feeling. All right. So, well, yeah, I think we're pretty much out of time. Does anyone have any, uh, any final points? Anything you didn't get a chance to mention? Well, I got a, I got a question if, if we like, so how did, um, Anna, you know, uh, Deckard's daughter, get get the wooden horse, right? Because Deckard didn't, like he said, like, oh, I didn't, I wasn't there. Uh, you know, the part of the deal was I disappeared before my child was born. But but so he's the one carving the the wooden animals, right? And then she, so she has it. So clearly there was a a transfer of it to her. And I was just wondering if anyone had any ideas how that happened. Maybe he left it in her crib. But it had the date of her birth. And it yeah. had the uh, residue from that place where he was hiding. I guess he could have been hiding there a long time. Right. But either way, she would have grown up in a world knowing that it's a unique object. 
You know, the way made that all of the other yeah. kids wanted it. And, you know, when, when, uh, they see, they go to see the guy that, you know, does date the wood and it's like, oh, well, this is, this is valuable. Uh, so, you know, if, if he did make it for her and s- somehow attach it to her or with her or put it with her care, care, uh, care givers. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it, it would have, you know, it would have survived. It would have been a unique enough object to survive at least to a point in which she was a little girl and it got, you know, she had to hide it to, at which point it was lost. Or maybe he's sentimental, you know, with that flower. I really like that, that theory. And so I he think, might be I the sort of guy who shows up. And yeah, I think objects. he was actually, I think like my, one of my theories is, and I have to think about this a little more, but I think that he lied and he said, oh, I didn't see her you know, that was part of the deal that, you know, I left before she was born. I think that he, he may have see, you know, seen her for a while and then, and left later when they put her in the orphanage, right? Cause she didn't, didn't she go into the orphanage when she was eight years old? Yeah. So what happened before that? But anyway, that's, you know, that's <laughs> yeah, well, for the forums. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the thing with this movie is that you can just keep talking about it forever, yeah. probably. Uh, but we can't cause we're all out of time. No. Uh, but so uh, I just want to give a big thank you to Daniel H. Wilson, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Matthew Kressel. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> and that was our panel. So big thanks again to Daniel H. Wilson, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Matthew Kressel for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue... Please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank John Green for sponsoring today's show. Remember to check out the first two chapters of his new novel Turtles All the Way Down over at turtlesallthewaydownbook.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one thank you for listening